We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Every Thanksgiving for the last 11 years, my family goes down to Long Island to spend the holiday with my wife's family, and we usually celebrate it with about 20 cousins and uh, family friends, and this year we did something we hadn't done before. Just before we feasted on our Thanksgiving dinner, myself, one of the young adult cousins, and three of the kids, we played a game of Giant Jenga. Now, if you don't know what Jenga is, which I assume most of you do, it's a block stacking game where you pull one block out of the stack of blocks and then you put it on top. And the goal is not to be the person who pulls the block that makes the whole tower crumble. Now, regular Jenga is about this high, but giant Jenga is played with two by four bricks. And the stack starts this high, can grow to as tall as me. And so the stakes are much higher when you're playing giant Jenga. As the tower is heavier, it grows taller, and the crash is much louder. And usually you can see as the tower starts to totter, the people scatter, because nobody wants a a bunch of two by fours falling on them or their feet. And so the giant nature of the game produces much more anxiety as you are the one pulling the brick out to place it on top of the tower because nobody wants to be the person who causes that tower to fall. Now, life right now feels a little bit like giant Jenga when we look at our world scene. And any one pull of a brick seems like it could cause things to tumble over. Our international scene is very delicate. As we know, relationships with Russia and China and the U.S. aren't at their best. There are wars in Israel and Gaza, Ukraine and Russia. The political landscape in our country is so polarized and a mess. We as a country have forgotten how to listen to each other, to hear ideas and talk about ideas and not attacking people's characters. And the cultural climate also has its way of seeping into our church life as well. And all of these things stacking on one another can start to feel a little unsettling, and it feels like at any moment the one brick could be pulled that will make the tower fall over. And this morning we are going to look at Isaiah 40. And to understand the heart of Isaiah 40, we need to have a couple, an understanding of a couple of different things. One, what has happened in the previous 39 chapters, and also what is a very delicate world scene that Isaiah was prophesying to. Israel as a nation and Israel as God's chosen people, their identity in those things were shaky as well. And as you read Isaiah along with the book of 2 Kings, you can see how at any point it feels like the world could come crumbling down. Major powers in the world and their world were at odds with one another. And in about a span of 200 years, you have incredible shifts in world power. Isaiah was writing during the Assyrian rule in around 740 BC, where the Assyrians were controlled Israel. 
The Israelite kings were often disobedient to God and would make treaties with pagan nations to protect themselves instead of trusting in God's good promises for them as the nation. You then have the rise of the Babylonian Empire, which overthrows the Assyrians and then uh, takes the people of Israel into captivity in the fall of Jerusalem around 586 B.C. Then just following that, you have the rise of the Persian Empire, which sends the Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple around 520 B.C. And then, of course, you have Egypt as a major player on the world scene in the background of all of this. The Israelites lived in a very delicate world scene, and there was tension in the nation itself as well. The kingdom, as you may know, was divided, and usually as the kings went, so did the nation as God's chosen people. They frequently were called out or judged for living wickedly, worshiping other nations' idols, and not living as God's chosen people. This is the scene that Isaiah is speaking to. And while he wouldn't have been alive for the Babylonian captivity, he prophesies about it in chapter 39, verse 6, after King Hezekiah makes a treaty with Babylon. The text says this, Isaiah says this to King Hezekiah, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. This is the fragile picture of the world that Isaiah is prophesying to. So let us summarize what Isaiah has said up to this point, which will help us understand the weight of our text. And Isaiah, we see, really stands in the gap between judgment and hope for the nation. And the hope of Isaiah is that one day there would be a new Jerusalem that would be established and ruled by a messianic king. And so in chapters 1 through 12 of Isaiah, we see God's judgment for Israel, for its idolatry, its wickedness. But Isaiah, in the midst of this judgment, looks to a day when God would uh, renew his people, and a remnant of faithful Israel would dwell with him in the new Jerusalem, and that God would raise up a holy seed, Emmanuel, a child who would be called the Prince of Peace. And then we come to chapters 13 through 27, we see God's judgment of the other nations, the nations that God is using to judge Israel would also receive the same judgment for their wickedness. He would humble their kings as well. But there's even hope for these Gentile nations in the new Jerusalem. In Isaiah 26, 2, he says, Open the gates that the righteous nations that keep faith may enter in. And we see that and we're reminded that God is not only the God of Israel, but God is the God of the nations. And so when we come to chapters 28 through 39, which lead us to our text today, we see uh, the, the conversation and the relationship between King Hezekiah and Babylon. And even in spite of the messianic hope, the promise that God day would come and build a new Jerusalem, King Hezekiah makes a treaty with Babylon that ultimately leads to the collapse of Jerusalem and the deportation of God's people to Babylon. Now, a phrase that we all secretly love to say, but none of us love to hear, is, I told you so. And in our text today, when we get to chapter 40, after King Hezekiah makes a deal with Babylon, and God's people are deported to Babylon, we would expect a divine, I told you so. We would expect words of judgment, 
or condemnation to the nation of Israel. But thanks be to God that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't speak words of condemnation here to his people, but God speaks words of comfort to a people who are struggling with their identity on the world stage, a people who are struggling with their identity as a nation, and a people who are struggling as their identity is God's chosen. And in the midst of uncertainty at almost every facet of life, God speaks words of comfort. And his comfort comes not in the form of simply well wishes or a pat on the back, but his comfort comes to his people in himself. God comforts his people with his presence. And God offers words of comfort here to the Israelites. And he uses these same words today in this text to offer comfort to us today. And this morning we are going to look at four reasons of why we can find comfort in God in this text. And the first reason we see that we should take comfort in God is that he makes a way. When we come to verse 3 of Isaiah 40, it says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now this verse is quoted by the gospel writer Luke to talk about how John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this voice, preparing the way. In verse 3, in its original context, the Israelites would have had in mind God making a highway from Babylon to Jerusalem. And the idea would have been one of almost like a second exodus of God leading his people out of Babylon. And the hope for those in captivity is that God would deliver them back to Jerusalem. However, unlike the Exodus journey, which resulted in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of Israel's unfaithfulness, this passage looks to a journey that would be easy. That God would make straight a path to Jerusalem, as he did when he parted the sea. Now, we know that this verse has its fulfillment in Christ. However, Christ is doing something greater here than preparing a way for his people to come back to the temple. He doesn't make a path to come back to the temple, but to what the temple represented. God makes a highway for us to come to life in the presence of God. That God would dwell with his people forever. That God, through Christ, is making a way for his people to have a clear highway into his presence. And through Christ, God has made a way for his people to be with him forever. We get down to verse 5. It says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All the flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And the first coming of our Savior was indeed glorious, that God, the creator and sustainer of all life, the one who holds the whole universe together, comes down and takes on flesh and is born as a helpless babe. And this event, of course, has changed human history forever. But at his second advent, it will be even more glorious as it will be witnessed by all the earth. And it will be a world-transforming display of his glory as God returns and makes all things new and renews the created order, removing sin once and for all. God makes a way when and where we don't see a way. The second reason that we can take comfort 
in this life is because God's word stands forever. We see this in verses 6 through 8. And verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. God is true to his word. And here in these verses, we see a distinction between us and God. We are mortal. Our time comes and goes. Yet God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We lie and covet, yet God is true to his word. We are sinful. God is holy yet God keeps his promises to us. God's covenant with Abraham, God's covenant with David, and God's covenant through Christ stand today. And we can count on him, for God has done and will do everything that he has promised. But we can be a little like the Israelites here. It can be hard to wait and to trust on God's good timing and his promises. And God here is giving us a divine perspective, one that we don't always share, or rarely do share. So even while the Israelites are in captivity in Babylon, God's word to them is to not grow weary, is to not grow tired and waiting for God to act, to bring about what he said he would. And when we are in the midst of trial, when things don't seem like they're going well, it's easy for us to also begin to lose faith in the goodness and the promises of God. This was a problem for Israel in captivity. And we can see this in the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote during the Babylonian captivity of Israel, often wondering if God was still there. If God cared about them in the midst of this difficult circumstance. If God would actually fulfill his promises and the longer that we are in the midst of difficult circumstances, it can be harder to have faith. Or we can have convictions about the things that we believe in this life, about God and His Word. But when life throws us a curveball, or we have something personal happen into our life, it can make us question the foundation of our faith, one which we have never questioned before, or change our convictions and beliefs. Which is why the Israelites are reminded here in the face of captivity that God is true to his word. And it's why the end of Isaiah 40 ends this way in verse 31, a verse that will be familiar to many of you. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When we look at the state of our world, our country, the things in our personal life, we can begin to lose heart. Our foundation of faith can begin to deteriorate. Or we can have a divine perspective and trust and wait on the Lord in his perfect timing. And we know that God has come in his first advent, and we as his church can trust that God will come again. The third reason we see that we can take comfort in God is that God brings good news. And oftentimes when we think about good news, we usually associate that with our salvation that we have in Jesus, which of course is a part of it or is an outcome of the good news. But the good news as is announced here and will be read later in one of our Christmas Eve services in Isaiah 52 is a proclamation, an announcement of the kingship and lordship of God in Jesus it is a proclamation of what is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, that God would send a king who would rule the nations forever. And this is the announcement that was the ultimate comfort to God's people, that behold your God. He is here. 
God is coming to his people. And we see a picture of this in Luke 2, when the angels announced to the shepherds, they say, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The good news is that God has come to his people, that the Messiah is here. And it wasn't just another earthly king who God raised up, but God came himself. This was one of the great hopes of the Israelites, that God would return to his people to establish a new heavens and new earth. We see this hope held up for the Israelites towards the end of Isaiah. In Isaiah 65, it says, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. God is doing a new thing through his king. And it was the entrance of Christ into this world that would bring, that would inaugurate God's kingdom breaking into our world. Which is why John the Baptist and Jesus announced that the kingdom is at hand. It is here in Jesus, and one day will be experienced in full at his second advent. Church, we can take comfort in the good news that God's kingdom is here. And God invites us to join him in his kingdom work that will one day bring the renewal of all things. We see the power of this rule in verse 10. Behold, the Lord your God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Take comfort, for God is in control of all things, that he is ruling and reigning over all the earth, even when life feels shaky, when we don't sense it, when we don't, can't make sense of what is going on. God is ruling in power. One of my favorite texts to read with people when I visit them, whether they're going through you know, a difficult circumstance, illness, disease, Psalm 46, one that will be familiar to many of you, that God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. Psalm 46 offers us a divine perspective, words of comfort as you get to the end of Psalm 46, that even when the mountains are falling into the sea, when nations are at war, when things are crazy, and invites us to be still, And know that he is God, that he will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in all the earth. But we can get so focused on the problems that are in front of us that we often fail to trust God. So we try to fix things ourselves. We try to enact our own sense of justice instead of trusting in God's good plan for us and for his church. Brothers and sisters, take comfort. We have good news. Behold your God. He has come, and he is coming again. And we see the fourth reason that we can take comfort in Jesus in our passage is that he is our king. He is our good shepherd. In verse 11, it says that he will lead his flock and he will carry them in his bosom. 
as a pastor, one of the questions I get asked frequently is, well, why didn't God just fix everything when Jesus came? Or why doesn't God just snap his finger and make all things go away, end all pain, end all suffering? Why didn't God just bring his kingdom in full at his first advent? One, because God is a God of justice. And he needed to deal with sin. God doesn't just pretend like sin doesn't happen. He doesn't just brush it under the rug and say everything will be okay. God is a righteous God. And sin has to be accounted for. And the way that he accounted for sin was by dying on a cross. By taking on the punishment for sin that we deserved and giving to us or counting us as righteous. God had to deal with sin, and he did that in his first advent through sending his son, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 1, 27 says, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. God is not a God who sweeps things away and pretends like they didn't happen. God is a God who acts with justice and righteousness and brings an account for the sin in our lives and the sin in our world. And instead of putting that judgment on us, he put it on his son and the cross. This was also the question that Jesus' contemporaries had of him in our John 10 passage. It says, So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They were ready for God to bring his kingdom in full. They wanted it to be over. This is the same question that they were asking of Jesus in our John 10 passage. Tell us plainly. But God had his work to do before it was time to bring his kingdom in full. And the second reason that God does not bring his kingdom in full, as we see here in our John 10 passage, is that he may bring more people into his fold. To those who hear his voice, that more people may have time to respond. As Isaiah talks about a remnant of God's people, the faithful ones who will be in the new Jerusalem. And Isaiah 10, 21 says, A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. And just before our passage in John 10, John 10, 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And God has entrusted us with this mission of reconciliation to go out and to proclaim the good news that the Messiah has come, that others might come into his sheepfold. But we know that this is the work of God, as it says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one, will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
Church, take comfort this morning that if you belong to the sheepfold, you cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand. And his desire is to lead us through Christ in this life, to lead us into the way of the cross, to lead us into the way of everlasting. But he doesn't just pull us along. He invites us to follow him. And when we don't feel like we have enough strength, when we're too weak, when life seems too overwhelming, the good shepherd carries us. He says he will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom. Take comfort, church. God's desire is to pull you in close to his heart. And so the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, is growing his sheepfold. And at the fullness of time, Christ will return and will bring his kingdom and power. Is God calling you this morning into his sheepfold? Maybe you don't know the good shepherd. Is God's voice calling to you this morning? The scriptures say that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, the good news, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will come into the sheepfold. You will come into his church. Repent and believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the great Advent hope. That one day, Jesus will come again to his people. And to those, to us, who are tired and uncertain and anxious about whatever it may be, comfort is here in Christ. He gives it to us through his Holy Spirit. And ultimate comfort is on the way, as we remember that Christ is returning to renew all things. And we, as God's people, can find comfort in having this divine perspective as we trust in him. And so sometimes we're in the weeds. We need to pull back and remind ourselves that Jesus is coming, and it is Jesus who will make all things right, who will make all things new. And so when things are not going well in life, behold, the Lord your God is coming. And when it looks like evil is prevailing, behold, the Lord your God is coming. And when you're concerned for the welfare of your children, behold, the Lord your God is coming. And when you or a loved one is struggling with illness and disease, behold, the Lord your God is coming. And when you feel like you need to take matters in your own hands to seek revenge, behold, the Lord your God is coming. And when you feel like giving up on God or the church, behold, the Lord your God is coming. Isaiah calls us to a divine perspective, and when we feel like life is upside down, behold, your God is coming. And he is coming again to make all things right, to make all things new. Park Street, hear God's words of comfort to you this last Sunday of Advent, that he has made a way. God is true to his word. God is coming again, and God will lead and carry you to the end. Let us pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the comfort that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, that it's so easy for us to get so caught up in all the problems around us that we, we forget, God, that you are God of righteousness and justice, God. God, that you are making all things right, that you are making all things new. God, when things feel overwhelming in life, help us to behold you, our God. To be still and know that you are God. And God, with great anticipation, we look to the day, Lord, when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Lord, we long for this day, the day where you will come and make all things new, God. But as we wait, God, help us to have, take comfort, to trust in you, to trust in your good word, God, to know that you are leading your sheep. God, for those who are here who may not know you, God, we pray that this would be their day of salvation, that you would call them into your sheepfold. Thank you for coming, Lord, for dying on the cross for our sins. And with great anticipation, we look forward to the day when you will come again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.